from the Hutterberg Catechism. We read Lord's Day 19, page 533 of your book of praise, if you want to follow along. Why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us as members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven, the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you ever feel like the world is out of control? Russia continues its attack against Ukraine in a war that's been going on for more than a year. President Putin has been charged with war crimes before the world court, although that body has little power to enforce anything against him. There are verified reports of the Russians rounding up Ukrainian children and taking them back to Russia as spoils of war. How can God allow such evil to continue for so long. Our society seems to be heading on a pathway of destruction. Economically, we spend far beyond our means and our increasing debt levels so high, our great-grandchildren will need to pay them off. Morally, we see our society turning away from its Judeo-Christian heritage. Drag queens read books promoting their ideology to kids at public libraries. And governments are creating bubble zones to prevent anyone from voicing opposition to this. The Bible pronounces woe on those who call evil good and good evil. But it seems like God allows the wicked free reign to do as they please. In our own lives, it also seems like at times things are out of control. We face sickness and struggles, and difficult things happen to us and to those whom we love. Makes it hard to believe in a God who is in complete control of this world and everything in it. If God is truly sovereign, why does he allow car accidents and cancer diagnoses? If he's in charge, why do I face struggles with loved ones straying from the faith? It's hard for us to make sense of how the Bible can teach that God is in control when it seems like life is out of control. This afternoon, we focus our attention on Christ's works as summarized in the Apostles' Creed. In the last weeks, we've considered what we believe about how on the third day Christ arose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Today we focus on what it means that he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and that from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. 
Our catechism helps us to answer the questions we have when it seems like life is out of control. I preach you the gospel under the following theme. Christ is enthroned at the Father's right hand and is Lord over all. Christ is the head of the church, the king of all creation, and the judge of every person. We read together from Psalm 110. It's a psalm of David. It is a messianic psalm. It speaks about the coming of the Christ and the role God appointed for him. Psalm 110 focuses on the fact that Christ would serve as both king and priest. This afternoon we focused on how God appointed him to serve as Lord and King. The first verse of Psalm 110 is very important, yet it can also be confusing. We need to clearly identify who is speaking and about whom he is speaking. David is the one speaking As God's anointed king, he speaks about his son, who would also be his Lord. David says, the Lord, that's a reference to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, says to my Lord, that's a reference to the Messiah, who would arise out of David's line, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Thus, in the first verse of the psalm, we see David prophesy about the fact that the coming Christ would ascend into heaven and sit at God's right hand. What does it mean to sit at someone's right hand? Well, since most people are right-handed, a person's right hand signifies strength. The Bible talks about how God acts with his right hand. The Lord rescued his people Israel from slavery in Egypt by bringing devastating plagues on the Egyptians, by drowning Pharaoh and all his armies in the Red Sea. And in response, the people of Israel sang, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Thus the right hand symbolizes strength and power. The right hand also symbolizes a position of honor. 1 Kings 2 tells us about how when Bathsheba came into the presence of King Solomon to make a request of him, the king honored his mother in a special way. First, he bowed down before her. Then he sat her down on the right hand of his throne, a position that showed his respect for her. To be placed at someone's right hand was a position of honor. And respect. Psalm 110 prophesies about how Christ would sit on the throne at the Father's right hand. It speaks about Christ, how Christ would take this exalted and powerful position. Verse 2 speaks about how by his mighty scepter, Christ would rule in the midst of his enemies, while his people would wholly and freely submit themselves to the rule of Christ. Our Savior would execute his judgments among the nations punishing all who refused to submit to him. The Bible makes it clear that Psalm 110 was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 22, after the Jewish leaders had tried to trap Jesus with hard questions, he asked them a question. Jesus asked them whose son the Christ was. They said to him, the son of David. 
Jesus asked them how it was possible for David to call his great-great-grandson Lord. In ancient times, a son would call his father Lord. But a father would never call his son by that title. Thus Christ showed he was the promised Messiah, the long-awaited son of David. Similarly, in his Pentecost address in Acts 2, Peter speaks about how Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and exalted at the right hand of God. Peter quotes Psalm 110 to prove that this was fulfillment of prophecy. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The fact that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy is what convinced many of the Jews to repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. That day, about 3,000 souls were added to the church. The fact that Christ sat down at the th- on the throne at the Father's right hand shows he has received a position of great honor and authority. The Apostle Paul speaks about Christ's glorious position in Philippians 2. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ's enthronement also emphasizes his great power. In Matthew 28, Jesus spoke some final words to his disciples before he went up into heaven. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means that the Father has given Christ authority and power over heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is in control of all that happens. He rules over the angels and demons in the spiritual realm and over kings and rulers on this earth. God made him Lord and King over all. We read together this afternoon from the last part of Ephesians 1. Paul speaks about how God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Many people view history as the acts of certain people and nations over time. It's easy for us to fall into that way of thinking. But beloved, Christ is in charge of everything that happens. He governs over all things in such a way that everything that happens will ultimately accomplish his purpose. What's striking about Paul's statement about Christ's kingship is that he says God made him head over all things for his church. Our catechism echoes this when it explains what it means that we confess that Christ sits at the right hand of God says Christ ascended into heaven to manifest or show himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. We know the head controls the body. Christ is the head of his church. We are members of his body. 
He works all things for our benefit. Sometimes that is hard for us to understand, especially when we go through difficult struggles in life. If you look at the situation of the early church in Jerusalem, it was hard to see how Christ was in control of their lives. The Bible makes it clear that some of the apostles died as martyrs. Christians were ridiculed. They were oppressed. They had their goods confiscated. They were severely persecuted. Paul was on his missionary journeys. He encouraged the Gentile Christians to collect for the needy in Jerusalem because they had become desperately poor. When you're hounded for your faith, it's hard to see how Christ is in control of all that's happening in your life. Yet he is. Acts 8 tells us about the consequences of the great persecution that arose against the church in Jerusalem. The believers were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But these Christians took their faith with them. Acts 8 verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Jesus used the difficult circumstances of persecution and suffering to bring many more people to the faith. Same applies to us in our lives, beloved. We live in a sin-stained world. We suffer the consequences of the fall into sin. We are confronted with difficult trials in life. Hearing the news that a loved one has been involved in a serious accident. Being confronted with struggles in your marriage. Perhaps even the betrayal of your spouse. Being diagnosed with a serious illness or walking alongside a close family member struggling with pain and with all the limitations it brings. Having to face serious issues with anxiety or depression or other mental health struggles. Seeing loved ones stray from God's ways. When faced with such trials, it can feel like our life is out of control. At such times, we need to stop and consider what's happening to us. Is our life truly out of control? Do you think that King Jesus doesn't know what's happening to you? The Bible tells us that such trials will come into each of our lives. James explains that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. It's through various trials that God is at work in our lives. Through them, God is busy with us, forming us and shaping us. The trials are not meant to do us harm. God uses them to strengthen our character, to bring us to a greater maturity. We may draw great comfort from the fact that Jesus Christ is head of his church. Christ loves the church as his own body. When he went up into heaven, he did not leave us as orphans. He poured out the Holy Spirit on his church. The 
the Spirit has come to make his home in us. And all the struggles and sorrows, the hardship and grief we face in this life, God is with us. He dwells personally in each of our hearts. He's there to comfort us in our sorrows. He's there to direct us back to the throne of grace when we're discouraged, when we're ready to give up hope. The Spirit is our helper and comforter in the midst of the battles we face. Through the Spirit, Christ pours out heavenly gifts on us as members. He works with the gospel in our hearts, directing us to Jesus Christ and the salvation we have in Him. He guides and directs us in our daily lives. He teaches us God's will for our lives. He helps us to live in accordance with the Lord's commandments. The Spirit helps us in our struggles against sin and temptation. He transforms us so that more and more we put to death the sinful nature. He works the fruit of faith in us so that in our lives we live to God's glory. It brings us to our second point, and it will see that Christ is king of all creation. Sometimes we have a rather limited view of Christ's kingship. We will acknowledge that Christ is head of the church, that he has authority over it. But we don't think that Christ has much control over this world or its kings and rulers. We can point to all kinds of evidence for our perspective. The world is an increasingly dark place. Most of those in positions of authority promote ungodly laws and policies. While the Bible pronounces woe on those who call evil good and good evil, it seems like God allows the wicked free reign to do as they please. Psalm 2 speaks about how the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Throughout the ages, Satan has been using worldly powers to try oppose God's work. Repeatedly, he tried to wipe out the Jewish people, destroying the line leading to the Messiah. He provoked Herod's attempt to destroy the baby Jesus after his birth in Bethlehem. He used the jealousy of the Jewish leaders to get them to conspire against Christ, to have him crucified. He used the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council, to oppose the work of the apostles, to persecute the early church. Satan's opposition to the kingdom of heaven has not stopped. We're affected by the empty philosophies of this world, by secularism, which denies eternity, which emphasizes that life is to be lived to the utmost here and now, encouraging us to buy into the world's desire for instant gratification. We're affected by materialism, which stresses you deserve happiness, and you can find it in the stuff you buy. Also by relativism, which teaches there's no absolute standard by which to live your life. What may be right for you may not work for me. It leads to a tolerance for many things the Bible defines as sin. Many of the world's leaders in politics, in business, and education, science, have become spokesmen 
for Satan's propaganda. In their own areas of influence, they spread empty philosophies. Think of the LGBTQ agenda or the pornography industry or the promotion of abortion and euthanasia. These are the world rulers of Psalm 2 that rise up against the Lord and against his anointed one. They're the seed of the serpent who do their utmost to direct the hearts of people away from Christ and his gospel. Through their influence, the hearts of many have been darkened. Their thinking has been made futile. If Christ is truly king of all of creation, why does he allow such things to happen? How can we be sure Christ is truly reigning from the throne at God's right hand? Psalm 2 teaches us that God laughs when hostile forces arise against him. Psalm 2 tells us that the Lord has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. It speaks of the Lord's decree whereby he proclaimed that Christ would reign, that he would make all the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. We need to understand, beloved, that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Christ does not rule with physical force. Instead, he exercises great spiritual power. Christ has established his church on earth, and he uses it to advance his kingdom. By his word and spirit, Christ continues to take captive the hearts and lives of many who are under the dominion of sin and Satan. Although Christianity has been in decline in the Western world, things are gradually changing. Our society has become a dark place for many. But it's when people are confronted by the meaninglessness of life, by anxiety and despair, that their hearts become open to the gospel. There are many new Bible-believing churches being established all around us. By his power, Christ also defends and preserves us against all enemies. We need to be careful to correctly understand what our catechism is saying here. It's not saying our enemies cannot attack us. We continually come under the assault of our spiritual enemies, the devil, this world, and our own sinful flesh. There's also times when we face the assault of people in society who are hostile to the Christian faith. Yet despite the assault of many foes, King Jesus helps us. We can find great security in Christ's kingly rule. He is the good shepherd of his sheep who has promised that no one will snatch us out of his hand. He has promised to keep us secure. Nobody and nothing will be able to separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. While we will undergo struggles and hardships in this life, Christ will preserve his chosen ones through all the ups and downs of life. He will hold on to us so we may share in his blessings, both in this life and in the life to come. It brings us to our final point, and it will see that Christ is the judge of every person. 
Part of our problem with understanding Christ's kingship is that we don't see things from an eternal perspective. We cannot understand how a righteous God allows great injustices to be committed. We see people promoting evil and getting away with it. To us, it often seems as if, as if the wicked prosper. Why doesn't God rise up in defense of the weak and needy? Why doesn't he punish evildoers? Psalm 110 provides us an answer to these questions. It speaks of the coming Messiah sitting on the throne at God's right hand, exercising power and dominion over all, until the Lord makes his enemies his footstool. Joshua 10.24 explains this for us. We see there that Joshua called Israel's men of war and told them to put their feet on the necks of their captured enemies. If you have your foot on the neck of your enemy, you've completely subdued them. They're under your power. The point of Psalm 110 is that one day, all God's enemies will be subjugated. They will come under Christ's dominion. When will that happen? Psalm 110 speaks about Christ, how Christ will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. It says he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide world. These things will happen on the final day. They will happen when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. On the final day, every person who has ever lived will have to appear before God's judgment seat. Every person will be judged according to the things that they have done in this life, whether good or evil. On the final day, Christ will divide mankind into two groups. He spoke about this in Matthew 25 when telling the parable of the sheep and the goats. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ and depended on him for salvation and showed this by living their lives in his service will be placed on his right hand, a position of honor. Christ will say to them, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of this world. But those who rejected Christ and his service in this life will be placed, will be placed on Christ's left hand. And he will say to them, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We read about what will happen on the final day in 2 Thessalonians 1. It speaks of Christ coming to repay with affliction those who afflicted his people and to grant relief to those who are afflicted. On that day, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes it clear, a great day of reckoning is coming. It may seem like evildoers prosper, and that they get away with great injustice. 
but God will balance the scales. Unless evildoers repent, they will come under his judgment. They will be condemned to hell forevermore. We don't have to fear that final day, beloved. Not if we have a living faith in Jesus Christ. We know the judge who will be executing judgment on the final day as our Savior. We believe that he has submitted himself to the judgment of God for our sake. That he has removed the curse from us. Jesus bore the penalty of our sins so we could be restored to communion with God. On the final day, we will be found not guilty of our sins. And so the final day will be a day of great rejoicing for us. On that day, we will be crowned with glory and honor. While shamed and ridiculed, oppressed and persecuted in this life, Christ will make known our innocence to all people. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Christ will take us to himself into heavenly joy and glory. He will cause us to possess such glory as the heart of man could never imagine. He will allow us to reign with him eternally over all creatures. We began the sermon by speaking about how it often seems like this world is out of control. We considered how living through trials and sorrows in a sin-stained world can cause us to doubt Christ's reign from the Father's right hand. Yet the Bible is clear that Christ went up into heaven. He is sitting on the throne at the Father's right hand. He is fully in control of all that happens in this world. He rules over all things for the benefit of his people. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And at that time, he will right all wrongs. And so the Bible gives us perspective on life. We know that Jesus is the head of his church, that he rules over all things for our benefit. We know Christ has power and dominion over all our enemies. Not even Satan and his forces can prevail against us. For we, beloved, have a good shepherd who cares for us. We may look forward to Christ's return when he will punish evildoers, but take us to himself in glory. And so we receive much comfort and assurance from Christ's enthronement as our King. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing together from hymn 44, Rejoice, the Lord is King.